Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. Welcome to the Along Came a Writer Network. Opinions expressed in our shows do not necessarily reflect those of the network. Publishing Lane with your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. Hello, I am Margie Lane and this is Publishing Lane where we'll be talking about publishing, uh, particularly this week. Oh, I'm so excited. Particularly this week, we're going to be talking about YA. Now that is a special genre. It's young adult, but there's also a fairly new genre that's called NA, which is new adult. Um, new adult is going to be, you know, college age and single on up um, through the the twenties. Um, but the book that we have released today from Right Integrity Press. Oh, I am so excited about this book. It is called The Revisionary, and it settles right smack dab into these two genres, both YA, which would be middle school and on up and through twelfth grade, and new a uh, new 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 adult in uh, a new adult. Um, and it goes through college. But I have to tell you, even us old gals like this book. And I say old gals with kind of a tongue in cheek because I'm not that old, but I'm sure, certainly not young adult or new adult. Um, but so did my high schooler. So it, everybody of all ages have loved this book. You ought to see the reviews on Goodread. They're so excited about this book. And we're we're really excited to welcome um, the the author of this book. Now, I have to tell you about this. Uh, the whole series, Kristen Hogarth is the author, and the whole series is called The Rogues. Is that not an awesome name for a book series, especially this kind of book series? This is a dystopian. It's set in a post-apocalyptic future society, and it just, The Rogues, that name just spins up images of swashbucklers. And I have to tell you, this book is full of action and adventure and adventure. Um, I'm just going to stutter through tonight, so y'all excuse me for that one. <laughs> Welcome, Kristen. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much, and I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> we are excited to have you here. Oh my gosh. Um, so we're excited that Kristen's recently joined our Right Integrity family. She is a teacher with Alpha Omega Academy, which, I mean, I love that too, because it is an online homeschooling academy. And I was a former, I am a former homeschooling mom. Oh my gosh, that feels so crazy to say that because my <laughs> children, my youngest, yeah, my youngest just graduated last weekend. And oh. so I've been, for 17 years, I've been a homeschooling mom and now I am a, I don't know, am I a graduate too? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I would say so. 
I would say so. So anyway, I can really appreciate the type of support that Kristen um, offers, the type of talent that she has through um, Alpha Omega Academy. And I think it is awesome and cool that her day job offers research for her passion because she's dealing with high school, middle school students all the time. I think that's the coolest thing. Mm -hmm. So you've been dealing with the very audience of your books. How have they influenced you? How have they influenced? Yeah. Sure. Well, actually, I was a homeschooler myself. So this is like a homeschool club tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we are. I guess we are. So how did Um, they influence your story? Yeah. Well, I mean, students are so creative. Um, I actually co-teach a writing club. And I I tell you what, whatever prompt the other teacher and I give these students, they just, they eat it up and they come up with some of the most creative things that just really challenge me and give me kind of a perspective into, you know, what makes them tick right now? What are their interests? And I think that really does help staying fresh and working with my, my audience. Um, I also work with my church youth group. And again, just gives me that fresh perspective, what life is like as a teenager. Um, so yeah, that definitely, definitely did shape my writing. You know, I love that. I love that, too. And what you were saying about um, the way that they'll look at a a writing prompt, a simple writing prompt, and they'll just go off into the ozone layer and and take Mm -hmm. this writing prompt so much further. I can tell you my my one of my twins was in a college dual credit class this past semester. And that very same thing happened to her um, where she had she had a, a writing prompt. It was a house, Kristen. It was a house. And this mm-hmm. was on Halloween. So what is the automatic oh, thing wow. you think of? A haunted house. Oh, no. Haunted she house. Wrote, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She wrote this this story, and it was it was a very short story, but it took you up and just left you hanging on the edge of the porch oh. of this house. And it wasn't anything anything at all about a haunted house. There was nothing haunted about it. I just thought I was so impressed that she took you. In fact, she was cleaning up the house. She was painting the house. The main character was, it was really interesting. And yeah, it always blows my mind how students can just uh, take what you expect them to do and go so much further. Uh, And you're Mm -hmm. right. The youth today, they really do stimulate you to they stimulate your thoughts. They stimulate creativity. Um, it just keeps things fresh. Um, Absolutely. And di- okay, so now I want to talk about dystopian, though, because I, I confess. I, I really don't know an awful lot about dystopian, but that's the post. Um, if I'm if I'm not wrong, tell me if I'm wrong. It's the post-apocalyptic, futuristic type of society. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. So basically, the world <laughs> is in a very bad state, and typically, you know, you've got a tyrannical government or either just a, a devastating setting that the, the characters have to overcome and typically maybe, you know, fight. So yes, you're right on track as far as what a dystopian is. It's the opposite of a utopia, which would be a wonderful place to be. Okay. And see, and when I, okay, when I was teaching public school many, many moons ago, I never heard of dystopian, but I do remember an old movie that 
that was a utopian and it was it was Shangri-La mm -hmm. or something like that and then then there was another movie that was post-apocalyptic called the the morning after um it was the morning after the bomb the atom bomb went off they weren't mm. all that neither of them were all that popular I mean I do remember them but I mean this was before the okay I'm confessing this was before the turn of the century gosh that sounds so old <laughs> but it was <laughs> It was before the turn of the century, and they really weren't popular. What makes them so popular now? What What was it about Hunger Games and um, and Divergent? What was it about those that made them so popular? Well, I think I think there's a couple things. Um, not to say, first of all, that there is more civil unrest than there ever was, because throughout history, you're always going to have discontent of some kind. But I think people have asked, what if a lot more? Like, what if this were to happen? How would I survive? Um, Could I survive? And so I think the idea of being plunged into some kind of hopeless environment and figuring out how to, how to overcome it really appeals to the imagination a lot. And like you said earlier, it also lends itself well to the action adventure genre, and so yeah. not only that, um, but it also it also it also offers like a futuristic and um, almost a fantastical departure from an ordinary world, right? Which and that's typically the beginning mm -hmm. of the the hero's journey archetype. You know, you've got your ordinary mm -hmm. world, and then you depart to this place that really pulls the reader in and they're wanting to discover it for themselves. And I think yeah. that's another reason dystopia has become so popular, right? Because it really, people are like, what's going to happen? They, they don't know what to expect. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and you don't know what to expect with dystopian because I know in, mm -hmm. in the books that I've been, I can't say that I've read because I haven't exactly read them, but I've been told an awful lot about them <laughs> by those who have read them. And and the books that I have read, you don't really know what's going to happen because a lot of times they're good things that happen, but just as often they're not good things that happen. And mm -hmm. even the worst possible thing, I'll never forget the movie Red Dawn. Now that to me, I guess, oh. was kind of a dystopian. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Yes, I do. My brothers actually really liked it. And so I, I sat through it. And yeah, I would definitely think that that would characterize as a dystopian. Now, I don't I know they remade Red Dawn recently um, when I'm when I was watching it back in, I guess it was the 80s. You know, some of my favorite my favorite actors were in Red Dawn and it was mm -hmm. a bitter pill for Oh, I'm not going to give a spoiler, yes, even though I'm sure everybody's seen oh, it, but yeah. I, it was a bitter pill because uh, that would it be was. a bad I thing. I was very upset at the ending. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was not easy to take. So it's kind of funny to me how it can be such a popular genre, but I can see what you're saying. So you're saying that, that it's because of the, um, we don't know what's going to happen and putting themselves in that position of, what would I do? How would I survive? Would I survive? I can see that. Mm -hmm. I can, that, my answer is very simple. No, I, I just go see Jesus. <laughs> I would not, I would not survive right. and I'd be okay with that. Um, a world with no it, ice coffee. Yeah. 
coffee, a world with no notes, <laughs> drive through Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Oh my gosh. No, no pizza. No. Oh, they did just kill oh. me. Just kill me now. Now I know that like Hunger Games and Divergent were really huge successes. Um, and so mm-hmm. for me saying that I found them a little depressing, I mean, I, I, I actually know people that would just want to slap me right now that it was their favorite, <laughs> favorite, favorite all time book. And I can understand that. But seriously, for me, right. they were a little bit depressing. Um, even my son. Now, I've, I've talked about my son before. He he went away to Africa mm-hmm. um, several years ago as a missionary. Oh, and he's back now so and cool. married yep. to a wonderful girl. And it's her birthday today. Whoop, whoop. Um, oh, happy birthday. <laughs> yes. So, but when he was in Africa, the final book of the Hunger Games came out and he was like, oh my gosh, you have to mail it to me. You have to send it to me. Please, please, please. I'm just dying over here. And he mm-hmm. loved book one. He loved book two and he got book three and he was like, you have got to be kidding me. This is just uh, kill me now. He, he hated it. <laughs> and, and oh. so I, you know, those, I, I know that it was frustrating. Even folks that loved those books were frustrating with some of the endings. So mm-hmm. I have a challenge for you. What makes your awesome series, The Rogues, what makes that different? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, one of the reasons I, I really wanted to write this dystopian trilogy is because I, I loved the Hunger Games. I, I mean, from page one and that, that sassy cat that Katniss had, I mean, she, yeah, she hooked yeah. me right in. I can't remember its name. It was something ludicrous. Um, but, yeah, I, and I got to the ending and, you know, so many people that we had been cheering for just, you know, they, they get wiped out. Um, the whole point of the story was to save her sister and then her sister dies. And so I felt deflated at the end as well. It just it just had this feeling of hopelessness. Like, yes, we won, but we lost what really mattered in the process. And, yeah. uh, and, and so I was, I was like, you know what, this genre has so much potential, but I don't want people to feel that there is no hope. I want, I want to point them to the hope. And, and so that was kind of my challenge for, for tackling this genre is let's, let's tackle these kind of tough topics, what if scenarios, but show that even through the tragedy, even through the the hopelessness, there is still hope. And so um, that's kind of what inspired my, my series because I wanted us to, you know, we're in a futuristic shattered state of what used to be the United States of America. Right. Right. And I, I wanted to rediscover how this country, like I wanted my characters to rediscover how America had started to to rediscover that heritage so that they could then find the wisdom to move forward and rebuild. And so there's a lot of that tension um, in rediscovering heritage in order to find the wisdom to move forward that I haven't seen in other dystopian books. And that's something I think that, that sets mine apart. Oh, I think absolutely. In fact, I just finished a blog article. I, you probably haven't had enough time to look at it um, because I just posted over at Right Integrity. Um, right okay. Integrity Press, rightintegrity.com. Um, the blog article is uh, is about 
the revisionary, of course, because today oh, is launch day. Yay! But one of the things I said, and it's just kind of my take from your book, because I'm a fan. I, I'm just saying, I'm a fan. Um, one of the things that I said was it matches the action and adventure of the dystopian of the post-apocalyptic type of book, but it also melds it with the richness of historical. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know how you did that, but it was magical. I mean, the way that that all goes together, it, it truly is. Okay, I'm gushing. But it truly is just magical. Um, and and your world in the in 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 its own right is an amazing world that you have created. It seems so realistic. Um, how, how instead of states, we have squares, instead of cities, we have cubes and the different cubes are different socioeconomic levels, uh, and mm-hmm. academic levels. And I just, that is just so profound how you created that. I mean, my settings, okay, here's another confession. I usually, <laughs> when I, you know, I know I'm a publisher, but I'm also an author. And when I write, right. I, I hate to admit this. I I write what I know. And so most of my books have been centered around Dallas because boy do I know no, Dallas. No I've shame been, in that. Yeah, I was born no and raised here. Well, that. almost born here. Yeah. Um, or over in East Texas, which is another area that I'm really, really familiar with. Now I will tell you this. Okay, segue. I am about to do some traveling later on this summer to Alaska. <laughs> so oh, I am about to have a new I, and I'm about to have a new series because <laughs> I am going to do oh, some heavy duty research while I'm gone. So let me guess, the setting's gonna be Alaska, right? <laughs> oh, you bet. You bet. I'm a, awesome. a cruise ship in Alaska. It's gonna have to be. But it's you know it's the places that I know. Okay. And for instance, I have a romance that I wrote a few years ago, and I wanted my hero to live in an uptown apartment. Um, When I say uptown, Dallas, for years and years and years, the downtown area was really a scary area to go to at night. And now it is really nice. They have all kinds of apartments. They have huge arts districts. I mean, it's really a, a happening place. When I was in high school, that was the place to go to end all your dates. And it was almost, it was a scary, it was like the the adventure to go. Um, So I wanted my hero to live in one of these art district apartments. And I found one that's called arts one building and it's in downtown Dallas. And it actually had an online 360 view of this apartment. It was so much fun because it was oh, for rent or for, for rent or for sale, but it was on a realty uh, website. And so I got to see this guy's apartment. And I swear every time I go past downtown, which I don't do an awful lot, but I do from time to time, I'm mm-hmm. looking at this building and counting up to the 18th floor, the Southwest corner apartment, because that's his lights <laughs> though. I'm going to wow. see him. On the balcony. Is that not, uh, I know it's goofy. Um, I also found a mansion. Well, I found a mansion for my author, uh, for my my author, for my main character on Google Maps um, down in, uh, it's in the, what they used to call the um, prominent North Dallas area. It now it's just North Dallas, but it is still full of mansions. um, And it's really, really pretty. 
and I found her mansion. And my girls and I were playing volleyball. They played volleyball for years and we were playing volleyball right around the corner from this mansion. And sure enough, we had to stop by just to see it. And it was as pretty in person as it was on the Google Maps. So it was a lot Mm -hmm. of fun. So that my stories always begin with a setting. Um, And I know that's just the way that I write. I, my girls laugh at me because I'm like, oh my gosh, what if a body fell out of that bag? And they'll just be in hysterics. We drove past a, um, a clothing um, donation box one time and there was a boot. Actually it was a pair of boots Okay. and, and they were sticking out sole first. And, and I, I know, yeah, you're, you know where I'm going on this. I did. Yeah, I had to go yeah. back. I had to go back and go look at the boots and take pictures of the boots. Because I mean, I was just like, oh, my gosh, that is so amazing. It was perfect. Oh, um, my goodness. So, and, of course, I write, you know, murders and suspense. So I see murders and suspense in those different places. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I always start with settings. And I'm. I, I know it's a little twisted, but I would have no idea how to begin creating a whole world from scratch. Uh, being in a future time right. period, you kind of had to re- recreate life, almost like mm-hmm. a space adventure or a magical fantasy. It was the same. I mean, it's the same type of thing. What was your favorite part about creating the ASU? My favorite part, um, I think it was going to be. I think it would be the challenge of creating that futuristic world, but still in a way that people could relate. So like you said, squares versus states, cubes versus cities, mm-hmm. you know, even though we've never been to a cube or the reader's never been to the square, they can still, they can still draw a parallel to something they can relate to. And so I think for me, that was, that was kind of the neatest part. How can I make the reader feel like they understand where my characters are while still, while still experiencing the novelty and the freshness and the adventure of it all? So in Portia's Ordinary World, that's her home cube, this poverty-stricken place. Yes. A, a mong- call it a mongrel dog. Um, so she, they obviously don't, they don't have pets like we would think of a pet. Like I have yes. a little pet kitten, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, the mongrel just kind of guards, like the one guards, kind of like the area she lives in, and she rewards it with like a bone from last night's, you know, dinner, just because it maybe will help warn other dogs. Um, and I kind of got that inspiration from actually a missions trip to Nicaragua, where there were all these just mongrel dogs, and they were so mistreated, but the people just kind of kept them around anyway. And so I'm like, you know what, that would be the kind of world she would live in. Um, But still, like I said, finding those, people can still relate to a a mongrel dog. But um, I think think the neat thing for me was just finding those those parallels. Um, Now, the challenge, on the other hand, is going to be keeping it all consistent, you know. Oh, boy, I I can... I can hear you on that one. I that's but that's true of any kind of setting, even my setting where they're actually real places. Uh, keeping it consistent is still hard. Yeah, I had to really work that out in my in my not my first draft, but in my second and third draft. Such as you know, Portia's never she's heard of electricity, but she's never lived with it. So 
that being the case, how should she react when she actually gets on a train that has electricity? Or what uh-huh. does she do when she sees an elevator for the first time? You know, these are things I just kind of take for granted. But how would how would somebody who's never seen that or experienced that feel? And so that was that was a challenge. I really enjoyed it, but I had to really be intentional about thinking that way. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that challenge. Okay, well, but now you mentioned something, though. You mentioned going on a trip to Nicaragua. Okay, we're going to rabbit trail a little mm-hmm. bit. I want to hear about that. Okay. Yeah, it was, well, it's, it's been more years now than, I think it's been like five years, but I went with um, some friends from church, and we partnered with Chosen Children Ministries, and we did CDS, and we worked on building um or I think we were tearing down the parsonage so the next team could come in and start building it. Um, great experience, but again, it gives you that, I think traveling in general, like you're referring to your Alaskan trip that's coming up, it, it really gives us inspiration for writing because our imaginations can go wild when they're exposed to alternate settings. And um, and so, yeah, that, that definitely was a trip that not only was stretching for me spiritually and um just physically even experiencing things I've never experienced before. But also as far as my writing um, definitely helped stretch me in that area too. It's funny where inspiration comes from. I mean, because seriously, your mongrel dogs, that can come, those, those types of inspiration are what make the story so uh, real. It, it, it allows mm-hmm. the reader to really feel the story like they're, like they're, living it. And by the way, those of you who are looking at reading The Revisionary, I promise you, you will live that story. Kristen utilizes something rather unique. Okay, wait, I used an adverb with unique, and that's never allowed because unique (laughs) means one of a kind. And so it is unique. It's not exactly one of a kind. Let's say it's rare. How's that? Um, That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll use rare. Um, first person is not generally, uh, I mean, it is a perspective that is not, it's not necessarily rare, but first person present tense is rather rare. And now before Mm -hmm. those of you that are listening, before you glaze over, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Most stories written before the turn of the century, back in the sixties and seventies, when I was in elementary school, probably when half of y'all were not even born yet, but that's okay. Um, back in those days, most of the classics, they were written in what's called an omniscient viewpoint, um, a limited omniscient viewpoint or perfect omniscient viewpoint, unlimited. And that's kind of from a narrative perspective where an, a narrator would tell the story and they would know how every character is feeling. And so they would tell you, this is how they're feeling. This is how they're feeling. Angrily, she did this, uh, you know, that type of thing. Um, and that, that omniscient viewpoint is, is, it's what I grew up on, but it really isn't done anymore because seriously, readers want to live the books. I do. I want to live through the story. I want to feel like I'm the main character. Um, That's the fun of it. So Omniscient Viewpoint really doesn't allow for that. It is the storyteller. Um, It's Chaucer in the in the tales in the um, oh gosh, they just ran off my head. Thank you, Canterbury Tales. Um, (laughs) 
Thank you. It, it just ran out of my mind as we're, as I was about to say it. Um, he's, he's the narrator. It's, it's the Grimm's when they're doing once upon a time that all of those are, are narrated tales and they're really hard to dig into the skin or to live through the story. So in the eighties, nineties, the, the writing kind of turned maybe even as early as the seventies, but the writing kind of turned a little bit going more to third person um, limited omniscience where you really know what's going on in one person's mind. That's the person that's kind of sharing the story through their skin, but they're still saying they're not using I, they're still saying he, she right. type stuff. Um, to be honest, it, it's not that it wasn't used before then because Pride and Prejudice is third person limited omniscience. That's my favorite, right. um, my favorite uh, classic. But it, it, but it was more used, used more and more often in starting in the 80s and 90s. And omniscient viewpoint was pretty much not done anymore. But then we started having more and more people using first person. And first person really allows you to dig into one person's skin, but you can't dig into anybody else's skin. The beauty with third person is that it's, you know, with each different scene, you might have a new skin to put on. Exactly. The reader can have a new skin to put on. And so I prefer third person when I'm writing, but it's first easier person, for us, really. <laughs> yes, it is. It's easier for us. But first person is perfect for this particular genre because that one person is living it and it's only through their experiences right. and it's only through their filters that we're able to see what's going on. It's only through their prejudices that we're able to see what's going mm -hmm. on. But first person present tense. Okay. That was, that one just really threw me, but it worked and you know, you never varied yeah. from it. I loved that. No. I, and you know, what's funny about um, first person present tense is, it really kind of polarizes writers in my experience. I went to the Florida Christian Writers Conference. Well, I've been going for the last couple of years, but I think it was two years ago when I first introduced this idea to some other writers and I kind of slipped it in front of a few people and somebody said, you know, I, I like the title. I like the storyline. I can't stand. I would never, ever write in first person present tense. And it kind of scared me because I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this was such a, a polarizing point of view. But I really believed in it for, for this story because, um, because you're right, it's, it's specifically through Portia's point of view, which as a writer is actually harder than a third person limited where I can kind of jump yeah. in different scenes. Yeah. And, you know, you can get a, you know, you can get inside the villain's brain or you can get inside right. the um, my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yes. And, and I realized once I started it that I, I did really love it, but it really is challenging because, you know, it's all Portia. How is, how does Portia know what, you know, over here, what the villain's plans are or how, how am I going to work that? So it's been really interesting and really challenging. Um, but with the present tense, I, I think the reason it appeals to that young adult, new adult audience you were talking about. Uh -huh. at the beginning is because that's he's like living in the like they're living in the present they're if every day every minute it's something new it's 
you know, it's fresh. And I think, I think maybe the, the tr more traditional audience is going to appreciate the past tense where it's like somebody's telling a story, but teens uh -huh. are, are looking for that action and it makes them feel like they are, they're in the driver's seat. They are right there. It's yes. present tense and it's, it's still moving forward. You know, and I think there's something about, you know, when you're, when you're using third person limited omniscient, because you're using everything in the past tense, um, I say third person, it could just as easily be first person. When it's past tense, it's like you're recounting, the, the main character's recounting the story. And so there's this, okay, the main character's okay, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the hero, the hero and the heroine both have their scenes and they're both the POV character, the point of view character. Um, it's from their perspective. And so you're like, well, then they must have lived through this. It's almost like it, it's almost like I know the end of the story. I may not know how it ends. I may not know who gets together, but at least I know that they're living because they're exactly. telling the story in past tense. And you can't say that about your book. I'm telling you, you can't no. you can't say that about your book because it's present tense. But I also I also can appreciate what you were going through with people saying, oh, I would never do first person present tense because that was so totally my attitude. I mean, so totally mm -hmm. my attitude. And our acquisitions editor for YA championed this book. And I and I'm like, first person present tense. <laughs> Are you kidding me? And she said, I've got to tell you, it works it works it is so good it's so good and and you have to sign it because I have to know what happens <laughs> and so, <laughs> I, so, I mean it and it and she was right it does work and you know what really impressed me about you though Chris I mean a lot of things impressed me about you but what oh. really impressed me about this particular book you never varied from that I mean there we, it's not like you didn't have edits in your book but right. I don't remember ever editing present tense in your book because it was there all the time you all you really stayed with it you must have really been a, doing a study on that yeah I had to be really intentional um and to go back to what you're talking about with you know pr prior to the 50s and 60s being in that omniscient perspective I kind of yeah um, I teach I teach English for, let's see, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. And one of the books oh. students have the option to read is C.S. Lewis's One of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew, which is one of the lesser known books in that, in that series. And I, I reread it because I wanted to be fresh on it as well. And I, I tell you what, I, I was actually jealous. I was like, how can C.S. Lewis get away with this? If I ever wrote in the style you know, nobody would ever pick uh -huh. up my manuscript. But of course, it's Lewis. Lewis is Lewis is yes. classic, and he can do whatever he wants. Um, but <laughs> <Yes>. you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to be very intentional with the the first person um, present tense going back. And every once in a while, when I was self editing, I would catch myself having slipped to like a past tense verb, and I would just scratch it out and and have to get back on track. But it's it's been an interesting. Um, exercise for me and I think it's just been fun because there is there's really so little I say little but there are not nearly as many books written in the present tense well no um but I will say especially for dystopian post-apocalyptic futuristic speculative it works yes. for this genre because it mm -hmm. really leaves 
it really leaves the reader hanging. They don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it literally could go exactly. any direction and they don't know until the next sentence what's going to happen because it, it, it's not a past tense. It's, it's, it's a, mm -hmm. it's an acting um, with it. But I mean, these stories aren't always happy endings anyway, are they? Uh, no, no, they're not. Um, and we talked about that a little bit, especially yes. with, like Hunger Games and Divergence. In, in fact, I refuse to read the last Divergent book because I've heard the heroine dies. And I'm like, what's the point? Oh, no! <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was like, I get really attached to characters. Um, and my friends can attest I'm a, I, I love my happy endings, which is ironic because here I am writing dystopia. Um, but, yeah, dystopian stories typically don't have those those characteristic happy endings. But so I really am determined that in spite of that, um, despite of whatever tragedy my characters are going to have to face or work through, again, we're going to have that hope. And, and I think we've touched on it maybe just a little bit, but that parallel that I'm making to America's own history. And so especially for book one and even into book two, there's going to be this this emphasis almost like on a flashback to America's own revolutionary time period. And, uh -huh. and, you know, when you study those events in history, those were really bloody bleak times. And yes. I think it just underscores that without, you know, freedom, I mean, in order for there to be freedom, there has to be sacrifice. You can't mm -hmm. have victory, you know, if you don't have defeat and even, you know, history aside, even in our personal lives, we're going to experience those kinds of things. And that's where I think the opportunity comes in my books to interject that, that overarching Christian worldview that, yes, you know, even from the ashes, you can have victory. Even out of darkness, you can have that, that hope. And, and so, yes, even though these, these books typically don't have that stereotypical, you know, riding off into the sunset, happy ending, um, there is still the opportunity to, to find that. And um, I think about like in Portia's in her simulation, and I know most people haven't read these books, this book yet, so I don't want to give away, but this, this futuristic technology, um, if you will, allows Portia to engage with, with past events. And I love that them. part. Oh, I love that yeah. part. That was just so powerful to me. I'm serious. I was weeping. I, I literally, I oh. was weeping as she's marching. And, and I was just like, oh my gosh, what in the world? It was just, it just, it was, it was heart wrenching. But at the same time, mm -hmm. it was so stinking cool. I love the way that you yes. just created it and crafted that. It, but I, and I also do need to put it aside for those of y'all that are listening and Kristen's talking about, you know, happily ever after, please don't get confused. There, there, we're not, we're not saying there's happily ever after at the end of this book. Okay. Cause I, right. first off, <laughs> I wouldn't want to tell you a spoiler, but second off, I also don't want to lie. So there, you know, this is a true dystopian, but she's right in that, especially, I mean, it's book one, we could, we're, we're going to keep going with this and it's got to be exciting. So we got to leave it on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Otherwise you guys are going to go, well, it's over. And so there's nothing else to look at, but no, there's definitely more to look at, but it's a very satisfying cliffhanger. And I love that part too. I was telling you that before we actually went on the mm -hmm. air um, and I'm not giving any spoilers away by saying it's a satisfying cliffhanger. So, um, 
for a futuristic story, the oh, we already talked about that. We talked about the fact that there's a historical link. Um, right. What else about the what else about the revision? Okay, okay. It's time to share a little bit about book two. What mm. what is the excitement? I mean, surely there is some excitement. Surely there's some. What are the hints? You were telling me that there's a that there is a um, a Goodreads uh, review where there are they're actually talking about love triangles here in in your story. Yeah. I love that. Oh my gosh, that is so much fun. So are we are we going to see a little more of that love triangle going on in book two? Possibly. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's so hard to it's so hard to um, to talk about book two without explaining book we one. We don't want to give away anything from book one. Um, That's right. It's really hard. It's like choosing yeah, words know, carefully. Yes, and to be honest, I wasn't. I, I definitely never intended to go for that traditional love triangle. Um, I think I think where people are really, at least some of my advanced readers, are pulling from is is that when you are thrown into such almost, you know, life and death situations and you have to survive, there comes this bond that, that you form with yes. the people who you're surviving with. And, and so I think that's what's happening in this book, even honestly somewhat without even my realizing it, um, based on some of the reviewers' feedback, um, that, that the characters are forming these bonds and these, this deep level of commitment to each other. And so how that's all going to work out, um, no spoilers. It's, it's going to get, no spoilers. get exciting, but I, it's, <laughs> it, I, that I have no doubt. I have no doubt. The first book is already so exciting. So, well, um, I tell you what, you know, we're going to end a little bit early, but I think everybody needs to just go get the book. <laughs> I don't want to give away anything. Um, I appreciate so much you joining us tonight, Kristen. This has been fun. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it has. I, I've so much enjoyed it. I, and to be honest, I mean, we we really had a lot to discuss, but we just talked so fast. <laughs> you know, I got my, if my family's listening in right now, they will all be nodding their heads and laughing because when I was in high school, um, I was part, my brothers and I were part of a, a Bible quizzing team. And uh -huh. maybe oh, because wait, wait, it was, was this, time. Tell me what Bible quizzing team it was. Okay. What, yeah, tell me, me what, most people don't understand what that means. But basically, um, it was different churches. And, uh -huh. um, and it was a teenage group. We would all study um, a book or a couple books of the Bible. And we would memorize, okay. like hardcore memorize. And Kristen, I month, totally know what you're talking about. I totally okay. know what you're talking about. You're talking about Bible Bowl. Well, is it's that not right? Like the Bible Bowl, it's not. It was actually different. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay, because my kids um, were all involved in Bible Bowl, and they they memorized you know whole books of the Bible, and they had to answer questions like a quiz type show. Okay, so maybe yeah. So if you're familiar with Bible Bowl, same kind of concept, but very okay. Um, it almost became we had these monthly meets and. Um, we had different teams, and we had, like, 20 questions per, I think it was 20 questions per, um, like, quiz, if you will. And each 
team member had the chance to participate and you actually had these little buzzers you had to activate from sitting on. It was really bizarre and I'm sure the mental issues oh, sitting are going to be interesting. But whoever stood first got the opportunity to answer. And you only had like, I don't even know how many seconds. And I just developed this very, very fast talk. Um, and I had to re, I had to unlearn that during college speech class, by the way. Um, oh, wow. Yes, I, I do have to, um, I do still tend to talk faster than the average person, I think, because of it. <laughs> well, I, I remember when, I mean, my, all of my kids were involved in it middle school and early high school um and they had to do something of the same thing only they had buzzers on the buzzers on the table and uh okay. they would the the quiz master would ask a question like you know i wipe wipe the sweat off my brow and brow would be a keyword and they'd have to to buzz in on it and then give the verse in the entire book that they'd memorized the one verse that has the yep. word brow in it is that the same type yes. of thing Oh my it gosh! Really was. Oh, it, world. it really was. <laughs> See, and because um, I know that that we we would go up to, of course, I'm in Texas, and so we would go up into Oklahoma and Kansas every month and do monthly meets, and then we had nationals in Indianapolis and Orlando and Louisville, uh, all you know, different mm -hmm. places depending on on the year. But my son, um, you know, all all of my daughters and my son all did it. But my son, his team actually won third place in nationals one year, oh, and I'll never forget he had he could quote the book. I'm trying to think if it was Romans or Acts. I can't remember, but he could quote the book in 43 minutes, and. He would be he'd be talking so yeah. fast I couldn't really recognize. It. Yes. Okay. So you okay? So that's what you're talking about. Well, I just talk yeah. fast, especially when I'm nervous. I talk fast, and yes, I do get a little nervous when I have to do radio show. I say have to do. I love doing these radio shows, but I do get a little nervous on them. Um, anyway, <laughs> but I am so glad that you were able to join us, and I am so excited well, thank you about for having me. Oh, you are welcome. I'm so excited about the revisionary. And we're going to have to chat again, you know, before we actually get on the radio again. We're going to have to talk some more at some point. It's because you were bringing up that we haven't talked for, we hadn't talked since I signed you, since before I signed you. And that's just shameful. I really, I really enjoyed chatting <laughs> with you. Um, well, Kristen's book, Kristen's book is monumental. The reviews are coming in. I am not the least bit surprised. People are loving this book, and they will love this book. Um, on my first reading, I couldn't put it down. But before I even read it, like I was telling you, our YA acquisitions editor just championed it wholeheartedly. Um, I love putting out new books. And this book I have been looking so forward to because, of course, I, the Ride Integrity Press, we didn't put out a new book in May. And so I've been looking forward to this book for a solid extra month because we didn't get to put a new book out in May. But I get to double dip this month. We get to put out two new books this month. So before I go to the second new book, um, we've got... The Revisionary is up. It is on Amazon. It's in print and it's also an ebook. And by the way, just so you know, the second book, the title is The Revolutionary. And you need to be watching for it. It'll be in the in the 2018. It'll be coming out 2018, but you will not want to miss book two. Um, 
But later this month, just in a couple of weeks, I get to put out another book. I'm so excited. Betty Owens Thomason, who is one of our award-winning authors at Right Integrity Press, she is going to share her historical Sutter's Landing. This one is book two of um, her Kinsman Redeemer series, and it's it follows the book Annabelle's Ruth, which is her award-winning book. And Annabelle's Ruth is a contemporary, I say a contemporary, it's not a contemporary because it's set in the 1950s, but it's a retelling of the story of Ruth um, in that in that time period. And uh, uh Betty just has such a gentle way of writing and her st historicals just they're just soothing. They're so uh, encouraging, so full of hope. And don't get me wrong, they have their trauma. But it, the way she writes, it reminds me, frankly, it reminds me a lot of Grace Livingston Hill. I just used to love her books. And uh, oh, Betty yeah. Owens Thomason, yeah, she she writes a lot like Grace Livingston. Grace Livingston Hill, but she's going to share her historical Sutter's Landing. Right now, it's at a 40% discount if you want to pre-order the ebook. So if y'all want to go in, go online to Amazon, it's called Sutter's Landing and get it for a pre-order discount of 40% off. And then next month, um, I get to, I, I mean, I, every two weeks I get to release a new book. I love it. <laughs> that is so Debra, awesome. Yeah. Deborah D. Harper is, it's been a long time coming. Her first just full of humor book was called Misstep. And it was the first book in her Road's End Mishap series. And her second book, it's been over a year, but her second book is coming out in on July 4th of all things. And it's really actually very apropos because this book deals with a sitting president coming to the little bitty town of Rhodes Inn and poor guy I just feel for the man because he is in for it I'm just gonna say this book will have you laughing out loud okay I'm assuming this book will have you laughing out loud because it embarrassed <laughs> me at McDonald's as I'm editing this book at McDonald's oh, wow. waiting for my daughters I'm laughing out loud and I'm and, and everybody's looking around at me and I'm just like oh this is embarrassing but I couldn't stop it was so oh, funny my so she what is, is what she is, is the title it's called faux pas it's called faux oh, pas. Appropriate. <laughs> yes, yes, it, it is. It, it is so funny. So it's F-A-U-X-P-A-S, faux pas. And it will be out soon for pre-order. It'll probably be another couple of weeks before it's out for pre-order, but it will be out soon. And it'll be available on July 4th. But also on July 4th is my next radio show. And we will be... Yay. Don't yes, and we'll be done before sunset. So everybody needs to come on and chat publishing with us, and then we'll be done before sunset. So you can then go out and watch fireworks. It publishing lane is always going to be the first Tuesday of the month, and so it's the first Tuesday of next month, which is July fourth at seven p.m. Central. So bye, Kristen. Are yes. you there? Okay. <laughs> yes, I'm saying bye, Kristen. <laughs> okay. Bye okay. to you. And bye to the rest of y'all. And we hope that you will come back July 4th and visit with us on Publishing Lane once again. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm glad you came. All right. Bye. This has been Publishing Lane. 
your host, Margie Lane Klubine, Executive Director of Write Integrity Press. If you'd like to learn more about Margie and her publishing company, visit writeintegrity.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-I-N-T-E-G-R-I-T-Y dot com.